From the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, this is Politically Georgia. I'm Bill Nygut. A federal judge has rejected a lawsuit from Fair Fight Action, alleging massive voter intimidation by a far-right conservative group in the 2021 Senate runoff election. I'm Tia Mitchell. Congress returned to Washington next week with a weighty agenda, creating a long-term government funding plan, working on a border security measure in hopes of pairing it with aid for Israel and Ukraine, and impeachments are just some of the tasks awaiting lawmakers. Plus, we'll look at news from across the state. In Savannah, with AJC Savannah Bureau Chief Adam Van Brimmer, and Columbus in West Georgia with WRBL-TV's veteran reporter Chuck Williams. And Emory University professor Andra Gillespie will be here as well. We invite you to follow us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts so that you never miss an episode. This is Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Ocean Breeze, Tropical Beach, Pina Colada. You can buy an air freshener to make your car smell like you're in an oceanside paradise. Or, better yet, you can point your car toward Daytona Beach and come experience the real thing. Visit DaytonaBeach.com to discover all there is to see, do, and enjoy along the world's most famous beach. Daytona Beach, Florida. Beach on. Tia, it's first time I'm seeing you since the new year, so a very happy new year to you. You're back in place in Washington, and you're going to have a very busy period up there with a lot of things pending on the Hill. Yeah, and happy new year to you too, Bill, and happy new year to all of our Politically Georgia listeners. We got a lot in store for 2024, like you said, starting out with Quite frankly, what could be chaos here in Washington? Oh, well, wouldn't that be different? (laughs) (laughs) Let me just introduce briefly everybody else who's going to be joining us today. Uh, Adam Van Brimmer, the AJC Savannah Bureau Chief, is here. Adam, thank you for being with us. Always a pleasure, Bill. Thanks for having me. Andre Gillespie, professor of political science at Emory University, is back with us for the first time in the new year. We're awfully glad always to have you here, Andra. Happy to be here. Happy New Year. And veteran and legendary uh, Columbus reporter Chuck Williams. Met years as a print reporter, but he's now gone over to the dark side of television at WRBL-TV is with us. Hi, Chuck. Happy New Year, Bill. Thank you so much, and thank you for uh, spending some time with us today. All right, let's get right to our first story. Federal Judge Steve Jones, who's been in the news a lot lately, obviously, he just uh, recently, uh, during the holiday, approved fully the maps that he had ordered the legislature to redraw. Um, He's issued another ruling that's going to be disappointing to Democrats. By the way, uh, Steve Jones is an appointee of Barack Obama, um, which is in itself interesting. This time, Judge Jones has rejected a lawsuit from the Stacey Abrams-founded group Fair Fight Action. They had alleged that the right-wing group known as True the Vote uh, engaged in massive voter intimidation This goes back to the runoff in 2021, the Senate uh, runoff, 
Um, they challenged the eligibility of some 250,000 Georgians, uh, and um, almost none of them was actually denied the right to vote. But Judge Jones said that because they didn't, in fact, cancel out anybody's vote, the fair fight lawsuit, which alleged that it, they had violated, true the vote had violated the Voting Rights Act, uh, simply didn't hold water. Tia, uh, your thoughts? Yeah, I thought it was interesting that the judge basically ruled that true the vote didn't have good methodology to their challenges, that the challenges appeared to be kind of excessive and haphazard. But the judge said, but even with the problematic nature of the challenges, they didn't rise to the level of voter intimidation. Um, so it wasn't necessarily a ringing endorsement of true the vote, but it was a rebuke somewhat of fair fight action in saying just because it's problematic doesn't mean it's illegal or just because it's annoying doesn't mean it's illegal. Andra, here's a direct quote from Judge Jones' ruling. Not only have plaintiffs failed to overcome the fact that their actions did not result in any direct voter contact or alone include or direct county boards of elections to pursue an eligibility inquiry, there's no evidence that defendants' actions caused or attempted to cause any voter to be intimidated, coerced, or threatened in Voting, And we should add to that, Andra, um, state law, which Judge Jones also refers to, allows now for any individual to challenge as many people as they want to in terms of their eligibility uh, to vote. That weighed into this, too, Andra. Yeah, this is a very narrow reading of the law here. And I think that's going to be a theme as we discuss uh, Judge Jones's other ruling uh, in the last couple of weeks. And so he is defining voter intimidation very narrowly here to think about obvious forms of intimidation. So if somebody is getting in your face, if somebody is physically threatening you, if somebody is verbally threatening you. And so he's drawing the line here by saying that it doesn't rise to the level of intimidation if you're more not more than annoyed by just the hassle of having to prove your residency. Um, and, you know, that's going to raise some interesting questions. And to Tia's point, because this action is a relatively new action, we don't have years of data with which we can substantiate sort of an ongoing pattern of certain people getting targeted over other people. And so the question that I have going forward is, is that if True the Vote uh, refines its strategy, continues to engage in this practice, and it is determined that they are systematically targeting certain types of people over other types of people who might be covered by the Voting Rights Act, whether or not that actually ends up reviving this case with more data. Um, so, uh, you know, it's it. Th this will be an interesting thing. But Judge Jones is, is being very, very narrow in his interpretation and his definition of what um, intimidation is. And he's thinking that this was a, more of a nuisance than anything else at this point. And, and, and that the, doesn't mean that this doesn't escalate later on, depending on what true the vote does. There's no question it was a nu nuisance for election boards around the state. Um, and Judge Jones certainly gave a thorough uh, ruling on this. His his ruling is over 150, I think, pages long. Chuck, you said down in uh, your territory there were a number of people 
whose uh, registrations were challenged by True the Vote. That's not surprising since 250,000 across the state were. It, it isn't, but three of them were involved in this lawsuit, and uh, including one of the plaintiffs was a Muskogee County registered voter. One of the people that was working with Fair Fight was a Muskogee County registered voter. And I think to me, Bill, what it highlights is this is playing out, obviously, in federal courts. But back in January, December of 2020 and January of 2021, this was playing out in local election offices and at the polls across Georgia. And Muskogee County was certainly not immune to that. We are clearly a county that leans Democratic. It's somewhere you would expect that. But The interesting part to me is the voters that were involved in this, that true, and I think Judge Jones kind of spoke to this, all three of the voters that had the Muskogee County connections all voted. They all clearly voted. They went through the process. It didn't even get to the election board. It was essentially decided by election officials that they met the residency requirements to cast a ballot in those runoffs. So, you know, while this is playing out in federal court, it's, I mean, it's really interesting where the fight's really happening, and that's on the ground in these local in these local elections. Adam, Adam, let me get you to jump in here and add something that Andra said. Um, you know, we don't know of these 250,000 people what the, the racial, the uh, breakdown of the uh, people might be. Uh, we know that True the Vote, among other things, used uh, post office forwarding address uh, information to challenge uh, voters. And and so it's interesting that at this point, uh, Andres makes an important uh, point out of all this, which is, was there a targeting of minority communities, minority voters who might be Democratic? We really don't know the answer to that. Yeah, we don't know the answer to that. And I really think this creates, uh, it was always going to be this way, but an open season for 2024 and what's really ahead of us. Uh, I will tell you that through the vote is, they're not the only ones here because I can tell you here in Chatham County out at the beach at Tybee, there have been over a hundred voter challenges, but that was based on people who are voting there, who are, they have their residences as second time homeowners and that there was a lot of charges that maybe they live in another state or, or Atlanta and were, were voting at Tybee and doing that. And the Chatham County board of elections has been incredibly busy trying to deal with those over the last couple of years. And, and that still hasn't been resolved. I think some of them were went ahead and struck from the rolls, but I think we're going to see a lot more of that over the next, what uh, this is January. So we're looking at November. So the next 10 months. So, and I also, just to bring this home, because again, in, in judge Jones's order, he says he did find things that were problematic or concerning about true the vote, but not necessarily rising to the definition of voter intimidation. And so for the people who are listening, the solution is not the courts. The solution is legislative. If you think that what true the vote is doing is excessive, it's not that the law can't be changed. This is part of reaction to that law passed after the 2020 election when Republicans were 
um, acquiescing to some of the concerns raised by Trump and his supporters about voter um, election system integrity. And they changed the law, even though there wasn't really evidence to support those changes. They changed the law, which is their right there um, in the majority. And they changed the law to make it easier to challenge voter registrations. And so if people, voters in Georgia, think that the law has made it too easy and taxed these local election officials with tens or hundreds of thousands of challengers, the law can be changed again. But the onus, the judge basically is putting the onus on the legislature to decide how much they want this to happen moving forward. Well, and in fact, as our colleague Mark Nisi reports uh, in this morning's uh, AJC, Adam, uh, Republicans very well might, in fact, continue passing more election laws based on their concerns about the 2020 election somehow being fraudulent. Uh, Mark reports that there could very well be an effort to eliminate general election runoffs. It was, of course, general election runoffs which elected two Democrats in Georgia, the United States uh, Senate, John Ossoff. Um, and Raphael Warnock. They might authorize public inspection of paper ballots. Uh, they uh, might uh, pe- allow people to p- fill out paper ballots instead of using the machines. And these are just some of what could come up. It Continuing, Adam, this theme that Republicans harp on, that they have to repair the fraud that took place in 2020, which recount after recount has shown is not the case. Yes, they are doing whatever they can to support that narrative, correct? And one of my neighbors here in Savannah has a paper ballot police yard sign in front of their home. Every Chatham County Board of Elections meeting has a group of of uh, activists that are there to talk about wanting to change the voting system and questioning the Dominion voting. And it's just one of those things that we're going to have to deal with and navigate. And, and not only what you mentioned, but just over the holidays, we saw the state election board chairman is going to be replaced. And it's to, to think that we're not going to have anything this legislative session that involves voting and trying to tighten it up, especially given what has happened in some states where you've seen state Supreme Courts move to keep uh, former President Trump off the ballot. There's going to be a lot of action uh, in, in regards to this election over the next between now and sign die. Andra? Yeah, I mean, I, you know, I, I, I agree with Adam. Um I think what is kind of troubling or distressing about this is the fact that some of these reforms are helpful, but some of these reforms are completely reactionary um, and not based in evidence. And it's kind of a shame that three years into this, people are still saying the same things, um, as opposed to recognizing the beauty of the democratic system. If you don't like the results of the last election, right, there's another election that's coming up. It's scheduled. You know when it is. You can go run for office. Um, You know, some of these uh, measures might actually get democratic support. There are lots of Democrats who hate runoffs, um, you know, and think that the runoff system in and of itself is inherently racist. So um, you might get some bipartisan support for some of these things. Some of these things are just going to have to go through the policy deliberation process where you 
pass a law and then you're gonna find out that it may not work and then you got to figure out how to go back and backtrack and kind of correct the things that haven't happened before so you know the part that is unfortunate for voters is is that they've got to learn new systems each election cycle um and they may not get everything they want there's going to be some frustration and perhaps some instability in terms of what people know and how prepared they are to respond to that um, Andra, uh, as long as it falls in your court, and then Chuck, I'd love to w- get you to weigh in on this as well. I want to go back to an issue that we talked about on the show yesterday, but which is still very relevant uh, today. And that was the other order that Judge Jorn, jo- uh, Jones issued recently, just a week ago, uh, saying that the maps that he uh, insisted be redrawn to give uh, black voters more power in electing the representation of their choice in the legislature and in the U.S. House. And and one of the issues that came up, Andra, was the notion of so what I call opportunity minority districts, like the 7th Congressional District, which is not a majority black district, but which is a majority minority district, Hispanic, black voters, uh, and, and uh, Asian voters. And Judge Jones very clearly in his order said that um, he was not going to address these so-called opportunity districts in Congress or legislative uh, districts uh, because he was sticking to the letter of the law in terms of the Voting Rights Act uh, being primarily for empowering black voters. Um, but that leaves the question open as to whether these opportunity districts somewhere down the line are going to be uh, uh, challenged in terms of their um, uh, legality as part of the Voting Rights Act. I think in the 11th Circuit uh, District Court here, they are part of the voting right, considered part of the Voting Rights Act, but that's not true across the country. Yeah, I mean, there, there there are a number of issues there. First of all, sort of considering whether or not the Voting Rights Act wasn't amended um, to include language minorities, which would have expanded it to include Asian American um, and Latino voters. Um, there, you could talk about sort of the issues that were being raised by the specific case that was being brought at hand. You could look at uh, Judge Jones probably speculating that he that even if he invalidated the districts, uh, you know, in after this redistricting round that he was going to get overturned once it got up to the appellate level. Like, I think that there are a lot of factors in there. I think what comes out of this uh, particular ruling is uh, the fact that, again, it was super narrow, um, very, very specific. It does ignore things like packing and cracking. And he's very clear to to separate and distinguish uh, partisan gerrymandering from racial gerrymandering. Um, and, you know, it's perfectly fine with partisan gerrymandering. So, you know, what we saw kind of come out of the General Assembly's redistricting process was them adding Black people to already Democratic districts, which, of course, was not what um, Democrats would have actually hoped for as a result of this districting round. But uh, to the victor goes the spoils. And since Republicans are in control of the chamber, they were able to to finagle this and get this passed um, and, and get this past the court. What I suspect is going to happen is you're going to see a challenge that is going to come from the Asian American and the Hispanic community, um, you know, in particular, arguing that their vote is is, is actually being diluted, particularly in the 7th District. Um, and, you know, 
they are written into the Voting Rights Act. So uh, we're going to have to look back at the case law. We're going to have to look back at, at at any places that have been required to provide ballots in different languages for other evidence to suggest that that's going to happen. Uh, uh, Chuck, and then I know, Tia, you want to jump in. Chuck, how did things change down your way in terms of the districts as they were redrawn? Little to no impact. I mean, there was we didn't lose or gain anything in the General Assembly. The second and third congressional districts, which Columbus has a sliver of the third, which is obviously a majority Republican, very conservative district, Drew Ferguson's district right now. And then the second, which goes making Columbus down to the Florida line, basically 75 to the Alabama line, is a minority majority district that is being represented by Sanford Bishop, the dean of the delegation in D.C. for Georgia. So all of that's pretty much staying like it is. So this this whole situation was playing out north of us, kind of like the Chattahoochee River. Everything was happening north of us. It just hasn't flowed down this way. Tia? I just kind of wanted to apply a point I made earlier today to this now, because, again, it comes down to the judge is saying the law is written in a way that doesn't allow me to do what the plaintiffs want me to do. So if, you know, rank and file voters would like for other types of voters of color to be protected and to have a right to elect candidates of their choice, they might advocate for a change in voting law. Now we know, again, this is something that there's a divide between Republicans and Democrats, um, that was a big push after Biden got elected to create new federal election standards and um, provide new protections under the Voting Rights Act to reinstate some provisions of the Voting Rights Act that currently aren't enforceable. Um, so, again, this goes down to elections matter because who we have writing laws, who we have in position to change laws at the federal and state level leads to these decisions being made, including um, not just how to write draw, not just how to draw the maps, but the laws that are in place to guide the drawing of maps. Adam, let me give you the last word before we take our break. <clears throat> yeah, I'm with Tia. It's the Voting Rights Act is since it was undercut. I guess might be the right way to put it by the Supreme court is, is really open the door. We've seen such redistricting out everywhere, whether it's in Alabama or Georgia or North Carolina that have really changed the composition of the U S Congress. And it's something that, that we're going to see some of these redistricting fights continue elsewhere. I think it's done here. I'm sure you'll see some appeals, but it, it's pretty much done here. So what happens with this redistricting, what happens in the 2024 election we could be in for a, a major voting overhaul at the federal level right. here in the distant future. All right. As we get to our first break, Chuck, we should very quickly point out, you mentioned Drew Ferguson. You're going to have a lot of activity down there your way. He's retiring from uh, the uh, U.S. House and uh, going to have a lineup of people uh, who can't wait to serve in the U.S. House. Chuck, that's going to be a fun campaign season for you. You know, and... T and I were talking about this briefly before the show started. I didn't see this coming fully. I mean, I knew that Congressman Ferguson was a little frustrated. I knew that the game had changed on him with McCarthy and that kind of stuff. But it sure has opened up what's going to be a really, really interesting deal. And the 
third congressional district something we'll cover hard and you know it i'm looking forward to it it ought to be a really interesting All interesting right. fight Chuck Williams gets the last word in the first segment of our show. We're going to take a break right now, but when we come back, Tia Mitchell is going to start us off in a conversation on just how busy the agenda is that awaits the U.S. House and Senate as they come back from their holiday break. This is Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Ocean breeze, tropical beach, an air freshener can make your car smell like paradise. A drive to Daytona Beach will actually get you there. Beach on. Plan your trip today at DaytonaBeach.com. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution has a special offer for Politically Georgia podcast listeners. If you subscribe today, you can get three months of unlimited digital access for just 99 cents. That gives you all of our sports coverage, politics, breaking news, investigations, food and dining, and so much more on AJC.com. Plus, you'll have access to our e-paper and our assortment of newsletters. So join our community by going to AJC.com slash start. That's AJC.com slash start. So you'll always know what's really going on. I'm Bill Nygut. I'm joined today by, of course, my partner from Washington, AJC Washington correspondent Tia Mitchell, Chuck Williams from uh, WRBL-TV in Columbus, Savannah AJC Bureau Chief Adam Van Brimmer and Emory University's Andra Gillespie. Um, Tia, uh, Congress is coming back. They've got a lot that they presumably will take up in the weeks ahead. Give us uh, just a couple of ideas about what you think you're going to be most looking for as uh, things get started up on the Hill again. Well, I think the most pressing issue of all is government funding. There are five um, kind of pockets of the federal government that funding will run out on January 19th. And today is the third. The Senate returns on the 8th. The House returns on the 9th. So there's really 10 days to try to get these five parts of the federal government funded before there's a shutdown. And then the rest of the federal government is funded through February. And so, you know, there's a lot of talks about what can be done. And, you know, we hear a lot about continuing resolutions. That's those stopgap funding bills that allow the government to just basically, they say, just extend the current level of funding through whatever date Congress agrees to. Well, because of the debt limit bill, if they do a long-term continuing resolution through the end of the fiscal year, which has been done in the past, but if they do that and don't actually pass new government funding bills, there will be automatic cuts, 1%, which doesn't sound like a lot, but in federal government speak, it's painful, especially when you talk about um, things like Medicaid, Medicare that are already strapped for cash, national defense. So that's a big thing. But then, of course, just as big is this border security stuff because it's tied up to aid for Israel and Ukraine, particularly with Ukraine. They are running out of money to fight Russia. And so they're really reliant on new U.S. dollars that won't happen 
very likely unless there's a border security bill. And that has been decades in the making and still hasn't been done. So it's just very complex issues here in Washington. Yeah, I, I want to I'm not quite sure. And you can help us and then we'll expand this to the rest of the panel. Um, when it comes to uh, President Biden's request that Congress uh, do, in fact, approve new funding for Ukraine and Israel, uh, uh, and that, is, as you point out, is tied up in the border security negotiations that Republicans are demanding. In fact, Speaker Mike Johnson is down at the border today. Where does that fit into the overall spending measures that they have to approve? So it's it would be separate because what the um you know first of all border funding of course it's going to affect spending but these are policy the border security is a policy debate and then the money for Israel and Ukraine are considered supplemental funding okay. so they would be on top so for example if they were to do another continuing resolution in the past they've done continuing resolutions but added on supplemental funding for natural disaster. Remember after the fires and the um, natural disasters, um, they added on some supplemental funding in previous continuing resolutions. So it could happen, but what's blocking the supplemental funding for Israel and Ukraine isn't that it's not able to be done. It's that particularly in the House, Republicans say they won't allow it without border security policy attached. Um, and Chuck, we should point out that this is one of those issues that as our election year really gets underway, creates some significant problems for President Biden. Uh, the president is determined to get Congress to pass new aid for Ukraine and obviously uh, aid for um, uh, Israel as well. But he's being pushed hard by Republicans to come up with a border security deal that many Democrats are very unhappy with. The Hispanic community is unhappy about it. It's it's a dilemma for the president in an election year. It absolutely is. And, you know, you look at, you know, obviously Columbus is right here next to Fort War. What's happening in, Ukraine, in the Ukraine and what's happening in Israel and Gaza are of extreme interest down here because of the soldiers, the training, and everything that's going on. And I think you're seeing it in a place like Columbus where there certainly are border concerns. There's no question about that. But there's also national security concerns. And I think that's going to be interesting to see how President Biden threads that needle as, you know, I mean, we're in election year. I mean, we are literally in an election year now. How how does he thread that needle? That's the question. Adam, uh, uh, obviously there are Georgia members of the House who are very, very conservative. The Marjorie Taylor Greens, Andrew Clyde's. Um, I'd love to ask you about Buddy Carter in terms of all this. Your congressman down there along the coast, um, who are are insisting on tougher measures for border security before they will vote for funding for Ukraine uh, uh, or uh, Israel. And then, of course, they're also going to be having other demands in terms of passing new spending in in the January and February uh, negotiations are going to come up. 
just as you use the word dilemma, I also think that that perhaps opportunity is a good word too, especially in an election year. And the real question there is going to be where is that compromise fall? What type of border security measures can be taken in order to to find that that sweet spot and get something passed? Because certainly the Biden administration has been marked by being able to pass major bipartisan legislation. And obviously, immigration is one of those third rails in Congress. And, and can um, can the president find that compromise? And, and how will it be embraced by the Republicans, whether it's Buddy Carter or Marjorie Taylor Greene or, or the Speaker of the House? I'm sure Andre probably can really speak to that much better than I can. Yeah, Andre, I wanted to ask you, um, wh- wh- what do you see as you look forward to the weeks ahead in Congress now about the influence that the right wing of the party, again, the Marjorie Taylor Greens, the Andrew Clydes, um, and others in our delegation, um, the influence they'll continue to hold over any kind of ability for Congress to accomplish some of the goals they, they we many of us feel they have to deal with. So, I mean, I think the big question is is that this is a test for Speaker Mike Johnson. And I think the big thing that most people are going to pay attention to is whether or not um, there's a shutdown as a result of an impasse in discussions. Mm -hmm. And that's going to reflect on Speaker Johnson's leadership, his ability to be able to get things done. So if there is a shutdown, um, you know, there are going to be people who are going to be making sort of claims about ineptitude. I expect that the far right is going to say that they're sticking to principles. Um, if the far right sort of, di- you know, digs in their heels and, you know, doesn't support whatever emerges from these budget negotiations, um, they're going to say that they're sticking to principles and their base is going to continue to support them. But I think the larger question is, what are the risks of doing this in an election year and how is that going to affect folks in marginal districts? For most of the Georgia delegation, that's not going to be a problem, but it does raise a question about what's going to happen in the seventh district, which is more Republican. But this is, you know, going to be a quasi open seat contest. I know Congressman Rich McCormick is going to move over there, but it would be really interesting to see, um, you know, what this does in um, in terms of who his uh, Democratic counterpart is likely going to end up being, um, you know, in that district and whether or not they would try to, 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 to run talking about dysfunction. I think Georgia, for the most part, is insulated from that discussion. But those swing districts, those districts that are represented by Republicans that Biden carried um, in, in, in the 2020 election are places where this is going to be ground zero of what the impact of that election is going to be. And even if our delegation, you know, is largely protected from this, they are going to be the face in many instances of what the national democratic discussion is going to be about who should be in charge and who's actually trying to get things done. Tia, let's uh, look at another issue. Um, With the support of Speaker Johnson, the House voted to move forward with an investigation, an impeachment investigation of President Biden. That will continue in this new year. And uh, we just learned this morning that Republicans have also announced they're going to launch a long-anticipated impeachment investigation of Homeland Security Secretary Secretary uh, Alejandro Mayorkas. Uh, so impeachment is going to be very much in the news in the weeks and months ahead as well, Tia. Yes, and I expect right now the Mayorkas impeachment has more traction and more support Um, than the Biden impeachment. But 
There's also the Hunter Biden contempt that mm-hmm. they might take a vote to hold Hunter Biden in contempt for refusing to <clears throat> meet with um, the House investigators behind closed doors. Hunter Biden said he would only submit to questions in a public hearing, not a private um, members only. Uh, so those two things, contempt of Hunter Biden and impeachment hearings on Mayorkas, to me, are probably going to happen more quickly than the Biden impeachment hearings, because the Biden impeachment hearings have a lot of risk for House Republicans, because quietly they know they have no smoking gun. Quietly, they know that there really isn't evidence for impeachment. But the minute you the further you go down that road, the more there will be people expecting them to impeach the president. So they know the risk of having setting up really embarrassing and problematic votes for themselves. I think they're going to try to delay that. How long they can delay that is the question. Yeah, of course, Chuck. um, The fact of the matter is there's one very loud voice urging them to move forward on the Biden impeachment. That would be that of Donald Trump, who's looking for some kind of equivalency, who would like to be able to say in this campaign year, well, yeah, they impeached me twice, but they're impeaching. Now it looks like Joe Biden, President Biden, is going to be impeached as well. I think you're absolutely right, Bill. You know, one of the things I want to go back to what Andrea said, and she was talking. She was talking about the impact of the far right and on on the Georgia politics. I think we've already seen it with what we were talking about earlier, Drew Ferguson's retirement or leaving of Congress. I think Drew was not a piece of that far right. Got frustrated by it and is done. You know, Andra. I think what Chuck said is really important. <laughs> We know that in 2023, it's been well reported that this Congress passed fewer bills uh, than any Congress in many decades. I think there were 27 or 28 bills that actually made it through. Uh, Two of them were bills that changed the names, I believe, of post offices. Uh, and, And so there's very little happening. Now, I get Andre, there are people out there who say less government is better government. But on the other hand, there are issues that need to be worked on (laughs) by members of Congress. And the question becomes, if we're at such deadlock, in such a deadlock situation, why does anybody want to serve, particularly in the U.S. House? Well, I mean, yeah, I mean, if we think about the one big thing that hasn't been done, it's a budget. Like, that's the one thing you are constitutionally (laughs) required to do. Um, You know, this is a reflection of polarization. So to channel my colleague, Alan Abramowitz, you know, the the impact of polarization is the middle. The middle has shrunk. The middle is receding. And so as we have gotten more extreme, the extremists get protected. But it's those who are in the middle, those who might be more willing to work across the aisle, ones who might be more reasonable in their approach are the ones who are actually the ones getting squeezed by this. And we have to ask ourselves, what structural things are we doing to exacerbate this problem? And then voters have to ask themselves, um, you know, is it appropriate to have legislators who would rather grandstand than actually do grunt work? 
um, who would rather make headlines, would rather own the other side than actually contribute something to the conversation? And is it reasonable to say that compromise in all um, instances is a dirty word? Um, and until voters are ready to have that kind of reckoning and are willing to organize to put forward people who, um, you know, don't subscribe to that, we're going to continue to have the problems that we have. Um, and so I think at the end of the day, the the, the buck stops with, with, with the voters. And it is a shame because there, I think there are a lot of really good people who are sitting on the sidelines because they don't want to be a part of this yeah. food fight and well, they don't want to get eaten up in the process. All right. We got to get to our final break of the show. But Tia, you know, we're counting on you to keep us uh, up to speed on what's going on up of there course. on your beat. Uh, so we'll pause for our final break of the show right now. But when we come back, we're going to take a swing around the state. And look at what's happening in Savannah, in Columbus, Southwest Georgia. We'll do that and more. This is Politically Georgia from the AJC. In Atlanta, one voice has stood out for over four decades. An AJC original, The Monica Pearson Show. Let's talk about how you got to ESPN. Revealing interviews. You are known as America's doctor, but I want to know who you were before that. When you have a different name, you have different color skin, it can be tough. With Atlanta's most famous faces, as you've never seen them before. I'm telling my story. This is the American dream. The Monica Pearson Show, streaming now on AJC.com. Welcome back to Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. I'm Bill Nygut. Twice daily, delivered straight to your mailbox, you can receive the AJC's Politically Georgia newsletter. Stay on top of all the important news scoops and exclusives from the AJC politics team. Just go to AJC.com newsletters and sign up today. AJC.com newsletters. Adam Brimmer, you're our Savannah Bureau Chief, so I'd like to uh, start with you, if I may, in this segment. And and I'll, I'd if you are okay with it, I want to start with a kind of a personal story. My <laughs> wife and I used to love taking vacations on Jekyll Island. We felt like we kind of discovered the island because it was so wide open. There was certainly not a lot of commercial development uh, down there, Um and we just always felt it was a very special place. I'll add to that, I grew up in Chicago, where the lakefront of Chicago was protected ever since the early 20th century by something called the Burnham Plan, which prevented building along the lakeshore. So we all had access to seeing the water. I mention all this because you just did a major piece in the AJC uh, that was published yesterday about the fact that things may be changing on Jekyll Island and not everyone is happy about that. Yeah, Bill, you've hit on Jekyll's charm, right? It's that rare island that is connected to the mainland by a bridge that has not become a, a high-rise condo. You know, I love Tybee. I go to Tybee several times a week, but it's Tybee is not Jekyll. And Jekyll has been protected since the state bought it after World War II. There were laws put in place that limited development. And what happened was, is, and this is what I got to in the story, is in around 2007, 2008, the island had become not financially sustainable anymore. So the state launched a redevelopment plan. So they took the, the, the lots, the sites, the properties that were already developed and redeveloped them and put some nice amenities on them, including a convention center, some hotels. Fast forward. 
that redevelopment plan is just about over. There's one site left to be redeveloped. It's an old hotel site that has been, the hotel's been demolished and cleared. They're about to build back some single family residences. But when that project is done, that revitalization plan, almost $300 million will be done. And I think, at least in my opinion, because I'm like you, Bill, I'm just very charmed by that place. Is It's really, it's back to its heyday. And it's really come back and they've done it uh, consciously and done it in a way that it's very attractive. Now, that also brings us to the fact that the redevelopment on Jekyll is not done. And as of yesterday, the um, Jekyll Island Authority started a redevelopment on the golf course. And it, 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 to make a long story short, they're, they're gonna take away nine holes of the golf course. They're gonna put a certain amount of acres into conservation and wildlife and, and keep that natural beauty. They've also reserved some other acres for redevelopment. Now, there are no hard and fixed plans on what they're going to redevelop it to, but basically what you're doing is you're taking green space and are probably going to redevelop it into something commercial. Yeah, and of course, what I should have started by pointing out, as you well know, Adam, that Jekyll yeah. Island is owned by the state. I mean, this yes. used to be the playground the of billionaires who right. came down from the north Uh to go to Jekyll, uh, it fell into uh, disrepair, and the state ended up uh, purchasing it to uh, keep it alive. Tia, one of the issues that one of the reasons this matters is it's part of a, a, the question that we raise across the country: to what extent are we willing to preserve uh, the natural beauty of places like Jekyll Island in the face of developers eager to profit? from uh, uh, building uh, residences, commercial districts. And, and this is a, an issue that confronts the entire country. Yeah, and this is something that we've talked about before. There are trade-offs always. You know, we love development. We love cool new stuff. We love, you know, cities want to grow and towns want to grow and they want Jekyll Island needs tourism. Jekyll Island needs development to a certain extent because they're so dependent on it. But the trade-off is the balance with the environment, with the natural, you know, some people want Jekyll Island to remain untouched and not too modernized and not too commercial, not too cookie cutter. Um, and so that's why it's easier said than done because you're balancing all those interests. And to me, that's the part of like governing and policy. That's the purest form of what it should be about. And, you know, your county commissions and your development authorities are having these conversations instead, you know, too often, even at the local level, we'll, we're talking about you know, books on shelves and culture war issues. And and so to me, I've, you know, there's no easy answer, but that's what governing is all about. Andre, it's also a national issue. During the Trump administration, <clears throat> they, the administration was more than willing to take back natural land for various kinds of development. Uh, pipeline, uh, basically across the United States, uh, drilling in the Arctic wilderness, uh, the Biden administration has tried to put a halt on some of that. So this is more than uh, this is, as, as Tia points out, in many cases, locally driven issues. But there are also major national issues involved in this as well. 
Well, yeah, I mean, another sort of <clears throat> artifact of, of polarization is everything becomes national. But I think that there's a particular mindset that uh, people are sort of bringing and competing mindsets that people are bringing to these issues when they're applying them locally. So there are environmental issues sort of about keeping the pristine charm of an area. And especially when you are talking about barrier islands to a state, those can be bulwarks against hurricanes, which we would expect to increase in an era of climate change. So we have to ask those issues. And that actually also sort of adds to the cost benefit analysis of development in these areas, because these are the places that are going to be particularly vulnerable. Like it's great when there's no storm, but when there is a storm, there is a price to pay for that. Yeah. Um, And then there are the larger issues of the people who live there. So if you're creating all of these tourist areas, right, that comes at the expense of the people who have to work there, who often aren't necessarily benefiting financially in the same way that the developers and the rich tourists who are able to show up benefit. And so there was a lot of kind of infill issues that I, I read in Adam's article about people thinking about, okay, so what are the right types of businesses? Longstanding, um, you know, businesses that have been there for a long time versus lucrative things that might appeal to the out-of-town set. Um, and sort of, you know, it's a, a different type of, of gentrification that we're talking about here. Um, and these are also, you know, issues that could cause rifts within a community as well, and they all have to be balanced and considered. All right. Um, thank you for that. Uh, Chuck, let's get a quick look at uh, things that are happening down your way. Now, in Columbus, they did some redevelopment that, in fact, uh, many people feel enhanced, especially downtown uh, uh, Columbus. And there are more efforts underway to develop things that will be attractive, not only to residents, but to tourists as well. Yes. Absolutely, Bill. Development is the key word here. We have a baseball issue going on down here right now. At the last meeting, a call <laughs> meeting of 2023, the city council voted to consider a $50 million bond issue to uh, redo Golden Park, which is a historic baseball stadium. Everybody from Hank Aaron to Chipper Jones, Babe Ruth have played on that hollowed ground. And they want to redevelop it with the promise from a group called Diamond Baseball Holdings. They own about 25 minor league teams across the country, including a lot of Braves teams, to bring a minor league baseball after 15 years absence back to Columbus. And there's a lot of there's a lot of push to get this done with heavy investment, but here's the catch to it, Bill. If you've ever been to Columbus, we have what we call the South Commons. And 200 years ago, the founding fathers of the city dedicated common areas. The South Commons has survived for 200 years. It has a football stadium, a softball complex. It has a civic center, has a skate park, has a baseball park. Um, what they're looking at now is to bring in private development to redevelop South Commons around the catch of this promised baseball team. And they're talking about a mini battery. And that's really interesting because they want that type of buzz. And it's also another issue of where the where citizens are going to be asked to support a, in your case, $50 million bond issue. Cobb County still trying to uh, deal with how much money it was willing to invest in bringing the Braves up their way. Adam, real quick, by the way, 
whatever they do in Columbus, how can they ever compete with the Savannah Bananas? But before we run out of time, you've got about a minute to tell us about another issue that you're watching down there very closely, which has to do with the speed limit on the waters around the Savannah River and moving into, uh, into Savannah. Tell us quickly why that's an issue that we might want to pay attention to. Sure. So the North Atlantic right whale is an endangered species. And this calving season, which started in the fall, we've had eight new whales born, which is phenomenal. Just on New Year's Eve, there were there were two born just off the shore of Amelia Island. The catch is the calving ground is right off of Georgia's shore. And the Savannah port and the Brunswick port, the shipping channels run 17 miles out into the ocean, which is right smack dab in the calving. So the federal government has is exploring basically expanding these rules so that any boat over 35 feet has to go 10 knots or slower during a certain time of the year to protect these whales. And it's, it's, it's pretty controversial. Port authority uh, does not want to see this happen. I understand. And your Congressman Buddy Carter is opposed to it as well, right? Yes, that that's correct. All right. Well, we know you'll keep us up to speed. I I, I apologize. I don't mean to to, uh, interrupt you, Adam, but we are, out of time for today's uh, Politically Georgia. Tia Mitchell, thank you so much for joining me, as you do so often uh, as one of the hosts of our show. I'm glad we were together today. Andre Gillespie, thank you. Adam Van Brimmer and Chuck Williams, I really appreciate a terrific conversation on today's show. Before we leave you, I just want to remind you, excuse me, that we are always open to getting questions from you Uh, Our listeners, you can call the Politically Georgia hotline anytime, leave a question, and we'll play it back and answer your question right here on the show during our Friday listener mailbag segment. The number is 404-526-2527. I want to remind you, leave your name and where you live if you don't. Uh, Shaney B. is going to give you a really silly name before playing your question. But please do. We love hearing from you and being able to answer your questions. That's all the time we have for today's podcast. You can now hear Politically Georgia live on 90.1 WABE in Atlanta at 10 a.m. Or follow Politically Georgia on your favorite podcast app and hear new episodes every afternoon. If you like what you hear, please leave a review and share Politically Georgia with a friend. Join us again tomorrow for Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Ocean breeze, tropical beach, pina colada. You can buy an air freshener to make your car smell like you're in an oceanside paradise. Or, better yet, you can point your car toward Daytona Beach and come experience the real thing. Visit DaytonaBeach.com to discover all there is to see, do, and enjoy along the world's most famous beach. Daytona Beach, Florida. Beach on. Donald Trump has been indicted in Atlanta. We have so many court dockets to follow, but we haven't really seen anything yet. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution has covered every moment of this historic case. I've been writing about this investigation for two and a half years. Our team is led by reporters Bill Rankin and Tamar Hallerman. 
Follow our coverage on AJC.com and listen to new in-depth episodes of the award-winning podcast, Breakdown, The Trump Indictment, only from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution.